Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. Once again, thank you for joining us as you do each and every week. We certainly appreciate it. We hope that you guys have taken notice of our new logo. Wanted to update things a little bit more, modernize it, and hopefully try to attract some more people to the podcast with our new logo. So don't be scared of it. Get familiar with it. You'll start to see it a little more over everything that we're doing, but uh, that is our new logo. It is official. So check out our social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and you'll see that new logo. Let us know what you think. Whether you like it, you don't like it, give us some feedback. We're certainly always willing to hear from our audience. Also wanted to remind you guys about our partnership with Amazon. Still ongoing. All you got to do is go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on that Amazon banner. Whatever you spend, we get a portion of. We donate that portion right back to some of the amazing charities you've heard right here on the Hazard Ground. Speaking of our website, we are rolling out our new website shortly. So if you're running to any difficulties or anything with it, be patient with us. We're getting it up and running really soon. You're going to love the new website. It's going to be able to have all of our archive content right on the website that you'll be able to access. It's just another great way for you guys to stay in touch with whatever we're doing here at the Hazard Ground, along with all the other ways you can get us, Spotify, Stitcher Play, Google Radio, iTunes, whatever it may be. Speaking of iTunes, leave us a rating and review there as well. Send us an email, producer at hazardground.com. Let us know what you like and don't like about the podcast. Also, let us know if you have any guests you want to see featured here on the podcast. That's also something that we're really soliciting you guys for. Uh, We certainly have plenty of guests, but we'd love to hear some more feedback from you guys. So with all that out of the way, let's get on to this week's episode. I'm sure you're really going to enjoy it. Joining us this week is a very notable guest, and you probably know him as his, let's call it pseudonym or alter name, but he's a former Marine, a retired staff sergeant who deployed once to Iraq as a marine bomb-sniffing dog handler. He was wounded overseas, and he currently works for Barstool Sports and hosts the Zero Blog 30 podcast. He is Matthew Cothran, but affectionately known as Chaps or Uncle Chaps, as you see him on all the social media sites. So, Chaps, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, man. I appreciate it. All right. So, before we get into your particular story, I'm sure all of our guests who are familiar with you, and maybe some who aren't familiar with you, want to know how you got the nickname or how you came up with the nickname Chaps. Yeah, so when I was stationed at Quantico, we did a lot of presidential security and things for the Secretary of State. So in order to have names whenever we went out to bars and stuff like that that weren't on our military IDs, we all kind of went by nicknames, and mine happened to be Chaps. We wanted to pick something from like our heritage that sounded like it. Um, So I went by a bar one night, and it was called McNeely's. And then with then I was like, you know what, Chaps McNeely sounds like a good name. And when I started going on Twitter and things like that, that's the name that I use. So I would if I wouldn't get in any trouble with the Marines. So I just went with Chaps McNeely and it's pretty much stuck since then. All right. Well then let's back it up and tell us how you got into the Marine Corps itself. Uh, yeah, so I just kind of got tired of my mom complaining about how much money she was spending me, from me going to college. Uh, <laughs> so I was about three and a half years done with a degree, and I actually wanted to be a preacher before I joined the Marine Corps. Really? I was going to, yeah, I was going to like a seminary-style school. Now, was that something that was part of your life growing up? Where did that come from? Yeah, my grandfather was a pastor for 50 years, and so it was kind of in my family a little bit, and I just... I'd kind of always wanted to do that, and 
it, looking back now, I kind of describe myself as having three lives. I have the pre-Marine life that would be like preacher Matt. And then I have my Marine Corps time, which I would view myself as like Staff Sergeant Cawthorne. And now I have my post-Marine life, which is drastically different from either one of those. So I feel like I've essentially been three people over the course of 36 years. So go back to you were in seminary school and how we get into the Marine Corps. Well, I just kind of got tired of like the day-to-day grind of going to school. And I looked at some of the older guys who were Vietnam vets and like little churches that I would go and speak at or preach at or whatever you want to call it. And I thought, how am I going to give these people actual wisdom? Like I, I have book smarts. I have like the classes that I've took, but I don't know anything real world. I've never had any struggle. The war was going on and I thought, you know what, I'll just go join the Marine Corps and travel the world and see the world a little bit and get a little bit of experience. But I I think I kind of bit off a little more than I thought I was going to (laughs) at the time. So I went down to a recruiter's office and originally I had stopped to go into the Air Force. I just wanted I thought that that would be smart. But my the recruiter that I was supposed to meet was late. He didn't show up. A Marine Corps gunny walks out in dress blue deltas and he was like, we're never late. We're 15 minutes prior to everything. He's like, can you do any pull ups? And I was like, I think I could do some pull ups. So I went in there and knocked out like 15. And he was like, all right, well, he's like, you obviously need to be a Marine. Don't join the Air Force. So we went through the whole spiel and I called my mom who knew I was going to talk to the Air Force recruiter and told her that I had signed the contract to go into the Marine Corps. And her reaction was what? Oh, shit. (laughs) This is not what we wanted for you at all. And I, you know, I didn't think I I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to do it. I mean, going from Bible school, it's not like that's the most physical thing in the world. Sure. And I had never really done anything like that in my life. So it was a personal challenge that I took it upon myself to do it. And I think that's why I liked it so much. Once I got the physical aspect of it and I started to excel in the Marine Corps, I fell in love with the Marine Corps completely. It's so funny. We've heard so many stories, um, you know, recruiting stories, good, bad, and indifferent, but it never fails. They People go into a recruiting station with one thing in mind and leave with something totally different for a variety of reasons. And more often than not, it's like you said, well, I went to go sign up for the Navy, but the Navy guy wasn't there and the Marine guy was there and he grabbed me. Or I went to sign up for the Army and he wasn't there, but the Navy guy was there. So I ended up in the, it's like, it's so weird how fate takes a hand in those instances and all of a sudden you're down a totally different path than you wanted. Oh, no doubt. And there's the only thing that really did it for me was the fact that this Marine gunny looked so good in his uniform. And I had no idea what the red blood stripe down the trousers meant. I just knew it looked awesome. And I wanted to wear it one day. So that's the reason why I did it. And I, my favorite movie growing up military movie was A Few Good Men. And I always ah. loved the line that the, the Marines down in Guantanamo Bay are fanatical about what? About being Marines. I always thought that was a dope line. That whole movie is full of dope lines for the record. Oh, yeah. So, like, in the civilian world, everybody knows I'm a radio and talk show host, but I always use in my show open a line from A Few Good Men. There there are so many great one-liners you can put in there. You want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. You know, uh, you know, you can't handle the truth. What else is out there? Um, don't tell I me what I believe. Don't tell me what I can prove. Possibly. Yes. The greatest you monologue in all of them. And you, you curse the Marines. You, you have, have that luxury. luxury. <laughs> awesome yeah. stuff. All right, so you are uh, becoming a Marine. Now, let me ask you a quick question about your mom, who was kind of riding you about being in college and everything else. You end up in the Marine Corps. Obviously, it's not what you thought you were going to get, but with a war going on, she had zero reservations about you going in? Oh, no, she had reservations. She was scared. But I kind of, 
uh, I kind of lied to her a little bit about my responsibilities, what they would do when I actually got to combat. Because after I went to MP school, I went on to bomb doc school or to canine school. And all I wanted to do was be a bomb doc handler. And so after I graduated there, I went to uh, Okinawa, Japan and just trained to, for that until my dog and I were ready to go. But once I told her, I didn't t- tell her that I had been attached to like first recon battalion to be their dog support for the deployment. I told her that uh, because I was good at paperwork and things like that, that they were just going to stick me in a company office and then I wasn't actually running missions. So she had no idea until she received a phone call that I had been shot, that I was even doing missions. Ah, yeah. Good call there. All right. Um, let's go back to your first foray into basic. Uh, and I do okay. want to get into dog handling stuff cause I think it's awesome, but, uh, you land, did you go to Paris Island or 29 Palms? Yep. Paris Island. Okay. So you land at Paris Island and your first reaction is what? Maybe I should go back to Biola school. <laughs> <laughs> this is a little bit much. I mean, it was just really intense. It wasn't something that I had been around and deal- learning how to deal with somebody screaming at me in my face. That's not how I was raised. Uh, so it was just a little bit different than what I expect. When I expected. How much of you at that point is thinking I made a bad mistake or I'm not going to let this beat me kind of deal? You know, it's weird when I look back on it. I thought during boot camp that the only thing that I have to get through is this 13 weeks. Like if I do this 13 weeks, I'll be good. And there's, there's certain aspects. And I think this is the same for a lot of people, no matter what basic training that you're in, you don't view it as like, I have a five-year contract or a four-year contract. You think once I graduate basic, then it's kind of all over. And then I just go do a normal job. Well, that wasn't the case. So I just kind of looked at, I have, 10 weeks left. I have nine weeks left. As long as I get through the pool, as long as I get to the rifle range, as long as I get through this day, I'll be fine. And then about two weeks before it ends, you're like, oh God, I still have so much more to do. Like it's not that it's going to be over now, but this 13 weeks is over now. Now I have a five-year contract that I have to fulfill. Was there a seminal moment for you where, as you talked about in a few good, few good men, they say they're fanatical about being Marines. When did that kind of galvanize for you? They're like, damn, I'm a Marine and I freaking love it. Well, because I think because I had so much experience in being like a leader in a church that a lot of those, the ability to speak and like get people motivated by your words and your actions. I think that that kit transferred over even in boot camp, where my drill instructor pulled me aside and was like, you have a lot of leadership qualities. I think that you're going to do really well. And this was the kill hat that did this one night at maybe zero three. He brought me in and said that he was like, I see a lot of leadership potential in you. I think you're going to do well. And him bringing me in and telling me that on a one-on-one basis, I thought, okay, well, maybe I'm not going to be terrible at this. Maybe I will do okay. Give me the feeling when you finally graduate boot camp. I cried. Yeah. So if anybody listens to Zero Block 30, they'll know I I like to describe myself as the Seth Curry of crying, that I'm an emotional guy. Like even though I have like my Marine background and things like that, I'm a father and emotional dude. Uh, So whenever they handed me the open anchor and you have little Lee Greenwood playing, it was an emotional time because I didn't know that I was if I was going to be tough enough to do it. And it was kind of like, all right, I, I can do this. I can move forward. And once you graduate boot camp, even rightfully or wrongfully, you feel like there's nothing in this world that I can't accomplish if I really stick my head head to. Now, looking back now, when I was a young PFC and doing that, it was just a foolish mind frame to have, but it worked for the time being, for sure. 
Tell me the one memory that sticks out from Marine boot camp for you, whether it's a, a funny story, a moment of levity, or somebody you know doing something stupid, whatever it may be. How how free can we speak on this? As free as you want. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) you you host a podcast, you know. Just let it rip, brother. (laughs) All right. So when I was when I first get there, we do this thing called hygiene inspection, where you are essentially butt ass naked, standing on line, and your company commander and company first sergeant walk up, and they have to make sure that your body is in good enough shape that you don't have any rashes, that you don't have any uh, huge scars or anything that requires medical treatment. And whenever they walk up to you, they do a left face. The, the company commander looks at you first, and then the company first sergeant. Then you have to spin around, putting your hands up and down in a motion, um, and say where you're from, what your name is. So I would say recruit Coffin Pensacola, Florida, sir, while I was moving around. Well, once he got to a guy right next to me, the company commander uh, has him spin around, and he does the he does a little inspection. The first sergeant looks at the company commander. The company commander looks back at the first sergeant. They look at each other for about five or ten sec- seconds. The co- the first sergeant is clearly waiting for the company commander to address an issue. Finally, the first sergeant has had enough, and he's just going to say it himself. So he says, "Fuck it, sir. If you're not going to say it, I am. Recruit. Where the fuck is your penis?" And the recruit. <laughs> moves his pubic hairs to the side and reveals like a micro penis. And the first sergeant says, noted, carry on. And he just has a right face and goes to the next person. <laughs> okay. I, now I know why you wanted to speak freely. That is, <laughs> that is an outstanding story. Oh, uh, man, that is That's awesome. That's the story whenever I go speak at like a group of like for Marine Corps or something like that. That's how I open up and then just lead the lieutenant colonel or colonel's faces in charge of the ball. Their yeah. face kind of dropped. <laughs> They're like, what I do? Why did I bring this guy? You know, it's funny. The, one of the anecdotes uh, I've learned in the, in the long time we've been doing the hazard ground, um, it's, it's similar to that, that if I ask you, when somebody gets blown up, and then, you know, they're, they're in an explosion. The first person comes up on them. If they're conscious, what do you think the first question they ask the guy is? Yeah, how's my dick? Yeah. Yep, that's the first thing. I, I, was, I was shocked to think that and, and realize that after the fact. But everybody repeatedly said, is my, are my balls okay? Like, is, every, is everything down there intact? Because after that, you can learn to deal with anything else. Like, it's almost yeah. like, I'll deal with missing legs. I'll deal with missing arms. As long as I've got everything intact down there, we're good to go. Yeah, so you really should say no and then, like, see the drop in their face and be like, just kidding. Just yeah, kidding, bro. Just <laughs> yeah, yeah, just kidding. You're missing two legs. Everything else is fine. You'll be good. <laughs> That's a pretty dick move, but funny. All right. Uh, <laughs> let's get to uh, after basic. You said that you knew you wanted to be a dog handler. Where does that come from? How, and, and how hard is that to get going out of basic? Uh, so in order to get a dog handler – well, at least when I went in, it might have changed a little bit now. You had to go to MP school, and then you had to graduate at the top of your class for MP school. So we had, I think, two spots um, from my MP school where you could you could pick one of the specialties, like, inside the MP field. So you could either go to SRT school, which is, like, the Marine Corps version of SWAT school, or you could go to canine school. And I wanted to go to canine school, so that's what I did. I went down after graduating near the top of my class. I picked to go to – Canine school in Lackland. Uh, that's okay. in Lack, mm-hmm. San Antonio. So, but did you want to be an MP, and that was something that came from it, or what was the origination of the dog stuff? Did you have a dog as a kid, or I mean, no, I, I'm, 
I honestly just said, I'll take the first contract that you have available. That's that I didn't view as like just an administrative type of job. I was like, if it has any type of fun things that I could do and I'll do it, I just want to go as fast as I can. So I walked into the recruiter's office, I think like January 28th and I shipped out on February 18th. It was quick. Uh, Okay. All right. So uh, when you went into MP school, were you already like laser focused on, I got to get top two because I want a dog handler slot? Yeah, I was. I want, well, I wanted to finish top at whatever school that I wanted to just because I wanted to get promoted because I wasn't used to getting yelled at by people. My motivation to get promoted quickly in the Marine Corps was I want to get promoted as fast as I can. So there's fewer and fewer people who could yell at me every day. Yeah, it makes sense. I a hundred percent agree with that logic. That's how I got through the army in 20 years. So, um, but okay. Uh, so when you finally finish, uh, MP school, uh, what's the, what's the feeling when you get told, Hey, you're getting a dog handler slot and you're going. I was I was glad. I mean, I I was happy to be able to go down there. I just viewed it as it was always described to me as a more independent duty, which is something that I wanted. I didn't want to be in a group every single day doing the same things, cleaning weapons, going out there and hunting every day. I wanted to have a little bit more individual freedom, and that's kind of what dog handler like from what I understood, that's what being a dog handler offered. And it was true. That's exactly what it offered. What was the thing that was the hardest about being a dog handler, and what was the thing that surprised you the most? Um, I don't know if any of it was really hard. I wouldn't say it was hard comparatively to some other schools where you're going out in the jungle and sitting there like and doing sniper stuff. Like right. I don't think it would be hard. It was you do get tired of you essentially have no days off a lot of times when you're a junior person, because whenever you put the weapons away and you put your weapons in your armory, if you're a normal grunt or something like that, you're done for the weekend. Once they're away, well, your dog still has to eat, sleep, shit, piss, go outside. So you really have to devote yourself seven days a week. A lot of times at the beginning where I don't have Saturday and Sunday off. Cause I need to go make sure my dog gets exercise or I need to go bond with him. And you have to like get in the government vehicle to do all that in order to get in government vehicle. You have to get in camis. It's just a long process. So you don't have a whole lot of individual uh, time off. You have to be able to be with your dog a lot. Was there anything about working with dogs that surprised you? And go, damn, I didn't know that. Um, well, I mean, there's. I didn't know that they had the ability that they did. I, I still don't know how their noses work and i feel bad for as many times that i've like farted in front of my dog like dude he smells that from like across the house like that's brutal man uh just how skilled some of the dogs were going through and finding a dog who was just unbelievable at tracking and biting and doing detection all the skills that some of these dogs have it just is really testament to nature and how incredible working with them it's just a awesome job every day to be able to just i show up in the morning i throw you a ball i play with you and your entire being exists solely to play with me because like when your dog's at home if you have a dog at home he might see your wife or your kids or anything like that a working dog their sole source of food their sole source of entertainment their sole source of exercise comes from the handler so that's why the bond is so strong because everything flows from the handler they're not like a canine cop in the civilian world where they go home with you they're in like essentially a jail cell until you come get them out so you're their liberator every single day wow are you a pet owner now you're a dog owner now at home 
Yeah, I got a master Fridgeback mix, and he's the single greatest dog that ever roamed the earth because he is lazy as all hell. Like he doesn't <laughs> he doesn't get up. I don't teach him how to sit. I don't teach him how to lay down. He knows absolutely nothing except for go lay down on your pillow or go outside, and he doesn't like piss on anything, and he doesn't jump up on anybody. He's really well-behaved, but he doesn't know any commands, and that's exactly the way I want it. Let me ask you about the relationship more about the dog and the dog handler. Um, and, and forgive kind of the ignorance of some of these questions. I know the answers may seem obvious, but my brain just kind of works in different ways. Um, how long does it take for the bond to form, not only from a just a generic working relationship standpoint, but how long does it take you to develop an emotional relationship with the dog? Because I'm sure that's part of it, right? Oh, yeah, it's definitely part of it, and it really just depends on the dog. Like I've had dogs where, uh, for instance, I trained a dog named Andy, and when I was at Quantico, Andy came to the kennels. He was about nine months old, and just he essentially had a puppy personality, and I loved him right away. But then I had a dog there as well that was a bomb dog that I used to take on, like presidential mentions, and his name was Santo. He was nine pounds. He was around 130 pounds and just an asshole. I still don't like that dude. Like I, <laughs> I, I, I re- dreaded every day going to take him out because I thought he was going to maul me, and he wanted to like maul me. Uh, one time we were in – we were – doing a presidential mission for then president elect Obama, where we had to stay at the double tree in Manhattan. And when I went out, because you put the dog away, you let him stay in the kennel. I felt bad for Santo because he's 130 pounds, even in the extra large kennels, he just didn't have any room. So we had a, like a sweet room and I put him into the bathroom. I was like, you just hang out here, pal. Like you'll have a lot more room. You can move around, lay around. I put down some towels and things for him. When I came back on this Secret Service mission, I came back to my room later that night from being just like a spotter for another dog handler. He completely destroyed the bathroom. Like he chewed up the counter, ate the hair dryer, took down the shower curtain, flipped off the back of the porcelain from the toilet where it was cracked. There was glass everywhere. It looked like a war zone when I walked in and there was it shit in there like three or four times and there's wow. piss everywhere. And I was just like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to pay for this. Well, I called my staff sergeant. And I was like, look, this is what happened. And he was like, dude, you are screwed, man. <laughs> <laughs> like, no form of support whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. He was like, I, he's like, I'm going to call first sergeant. I was like, well, before you call first sergeant, just please let me call the Secret Service detail and let them know what happened. Let me give them a heads up. I did. And the Secret Service agent was like, ah, oh, we don't care. We'll put it on the government card. It'll be fine. Whatever, dude. Don't worry about it. We'll get you a new room. I was like, what? It was just a completely different process from what the Marine and me expected. I expected to essentially get flogged in the streets for it. Yeah. Well, welcome to your tax dollars hard at work right there. So uh, there's that. Um, How can you tell a difference between like a really smart dog and a super, super smart dog? Is there a difference? Are they all pretty much the same? Oh, yeah. There's like a super dog for sure. Uh, To me, they look like a Malinois. I I always get asked what's the best breed of dog, and I would say a Malinois. And then when somebody says what's the worst breed of pet to have 
for like an actual pet at home. It's the same answer. It's a Malinois. Like they will eat your house. They will eat whatever, but they are amazing, amazing dogs. They have high drive. They'll work for hours, incredible noses. They bite hard. They're fast. Anything that you could want a working dog to do, a Belgian Malinois is it. Do dogs that, um, cause I have had a chance to train with dogs, you know, where you put the sleeve on, they get, they run and they, and they jump on you. Like, you know, I put on that suit. Do, do all dogs do that or dogs that you have specifically only do bombs and then other dogs do the attacking? It, it depends. Uh, you can have a dual purpose dogs. The Marine Corps primarily runs on dual purpose dogs, but some of the branches like the Air Force doesn't have as many of dual purpose. They've gone to more of a singular purpose dog where you're either a bomb dog or a drug dog or an attack dog. Um, but the Marine Corps, we like it to be a bomb attack or drug attack. Uh, so, yeah, you you can have some jack-of-all-trades, but most of them will have a single purpose now. Interesting stuff. All right, so let's kind of move forward here. Your first assignment was at Okinawa. How quickly do you end up deploying? When do you find out? Where, where are you going? What's your mission? It took me about two years, and I felt like a big failure because I was get, I just kept put, get putting on drug dogs, and I was – a good drug dog handler. So they put me as being in charge of like all the drug dog handlers that were there, but we were just doing like health and comfort type of stuff. And it felt way more policing than it did like Marine Corps stuff. Like if other people were coming back from a mew, we'd have to be there early in the morning to go check their gear to see if they had weed or contraband or anything like that. And it just, I hated that aspect of it. And I wanted to deploy, um, Eventually, I got on a bomb dog and found out I was going to deploy, and I was really excited. And you're heading to where? I I went to Fallujah. All right. And what is uh, – you said you were with First Recon. So clearly, um, uh, this is a, a type of unit that is involved in a lot of contact and a lot of you know patrolling and things of that nature. Were you excited about that, nervous? Well, when I got to Iraq, my mission was supposed to be to work at a place called Kamba, uh Baharia. And I was outside and I was just going to do like entry control points. Well, I think it was like my third or fourth day in country. The guy who was supposed to be with first recon was actually killed in action. And my staff sergeant at the time called me and he was like, Hey, uh, he let me know what happened and asked me if I'd be interested in being first recon battalion's dog. And I said, Sure, I would love to do that. I think it would be great for my career, be a great opportunity, and my dog is really good. I'm in great shape, so I think it would be fine. But I didn't have any of the workup. I had nothing. Like So when they would call formations, uh, I was trying to draw back from when I had went to Marine combat training three three years ago, like at that time. So I didn't know what they were talking about. I didn't know – I hadn't done a whole lot of – clearing like in a law enforcement capacity i had but not in combat not being stacked up with dudes like reconnaissance men who are very efficient in going through and clearing a house i didn't know any of that stuff let me ask you about kind of the feeling when your staff sergeant walks in and tells you you're replacing a guy who was just killed in combat is there any hesitation on your part whatsoever going uh yeah i don't want to be next no, uh, and I don't mean to say that like as like a cocky thing, but it was just like this is what I'm here to do, and it was right. really at that point where the war became real to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I think before you actually go, it's like this romantic idea, but whenever I actually picked up 
like another canine handler and put him on a helicopter, it changed my entire perspective about what was going on that I really needed to buckle down. And this was an important job. I knew my dog was good. I knew I was good and I knew I could pick it up faster than uh, probably the other guys that were there with me. Uh, so I was, I was ready for the challenge. So you're falling on this unit. Um, the war is real. As you just said, what's kind of your first wake up call. Is there one or does it happen all over the course of time? Oh, my first firefight was incredibly scary. I mean, I, I think that if you go into your first firefight and you say that you aren't scared out of your mind, you're kind of a liar. Um, oh, I agree. There, there was, there was a time whenever I heard the popping go by and there was so much of my Marine Corps training that clicked at that moment. I had always wondered why as Marines, we were down in the pits, pulling, pulling the targets down into the pits. It's just so that you know what it sounds like when the rounds are coming in your direction, you know, exactly what it sounds like, how far away they are, which way you need to move because you've heard that in the pits over and over and over again. The moment that a round came by and popped by my ear for the first time, I knew exactly what it was. It didn't take me long to figure it out, and it made sense why we do certain things. Attention to detail. Um, you have to be in the exact right position at the exact right time or people die. And it, at my first firefight, I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> then I was really like, this is, this is really real. How did it start? Do you remember? Uh, yeah, from the, from the best of my memory, there was a V-bit that had – drove and uh, exploded just outside of our compound on a house that we had taken inside Fallujah. And right after that, there was like a complex attack and we were in a tick for probably like 45 minutes. But if you would asked me after and asked me how long it was, I would have said that was five hours. Yeah. I mean, oh, it yeah, was always. the longest 45 minutes of my life. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for whatever reason, as quick as things move, uh, when bolts are flying in combat, um, time seems to move really slower than you think it does. Like, you know, you, right. 20 minutes seems like three hours. And as you said, 45 could seem like five hours. Um, so when you have this wake up call, uh, and you know, you have this moment that, all right, I, I'm, I'm in the real deal. Um, it's typically after those moments when you get to kind of take stock and everything that just happened, that some different set of emotions set in. Was it that case for you? Yeah, it was kind of like dread uh, because I was only a month in and I was just, again, like I was in boot camp. I was watching the clock like I wanted to get out of there. And I, it was – you knew that you couldn't have that mentality that you have to move forward every single day. But for us, we operated under the cover of darkness a lot of times. So like as the sun starts to go down, you're just like, here we go. We're about to go do some stuff. And as a bomb dog handler, like your responsibility is to be out in front of point. And like I said, I didn't know a whole lot of tactics, but I was like the point man. We're leading where we were going, trying to figure it out. They're telling me to like find this grid point and I'm going to be leading things. And I had no idea what I was doing for the first probably six weeks. It was six weeks in that I kind of had a grasp on it a little bit, but it took me a while for sure. And I was so, I, I look back and I think, there's this reputation that Marines have about being badass and being completely combat ready all the time. And that's just not the case for like 90% of us. Like it's just not. Well, it's just, there is a training takes you so far, but human emotion and human, you know, condition say that certain things are, you, you can't train for, you know, I mean, oh yeah, I, I think I've said this repeatedly. There are 
some of the biggest badasses that I've been around and seen and act so tough and everything during training and the first bullet flies and they cower like they fall down into a little ball and it's like, you know, they're afraid to move. They get frozen. And then there are kids who are the squirmiest little dudes who you, you th- think couldn't win a bar fight, you know, a- against a kid. And lo and behold, they're the first ones standing up there putting rounds down range when it matters. Yep. And it was at that point, like it's at those points where you don't know where you go. One of my favorite military quotes is courage isn't the absence of fear, but moving forward despite fear. And I feel like that is the essence of combat. Like you're scared the entire time, but you keep pushing forward. So I read the story that you wrote uh, under your your pseudo pen name, Chaps McNeely, uh, about the time you guys found the 855 gallon drums. And you talked about how scared you were to stand on top of a truck with them. Can you give me the details of that? Yeah, so it was one of my first couple of weeks in with Recon, and they had asked me to go check out this vehicle. And when when you train a dog, like when I trained Psycho, who was my military working dog at the time, you're training on a pound and a half of C4. You might be training on two sticks of dynamite, five sticks of dynamite, a little bit of deck cord, some time fuse, things like that. You're not training in large scale amounts. So when you're dealing with eight fifty five gallon drums full of explosives, they're shake charged and, and shit like that is what they're saying. The training is so different. That's why you have to have like a skilled handler to be able to recognize because my dog was so excited whenever he started smelling it downwind that he just thinks in his mind when he smells explosive that a ball is going to come out of that smell. Like that's how we get them to train. They're not looking for bombs. They're looking for a toy. So whenever they smell the C4, a toy pops out of it. So he sees – he smells all that explosives, and he gets so excited that he starts to spin in circles and like legitimately shit like while he's spinning because he's so excited, like so excited <laughs> that he shit his pants. He's like, there's going to be so many toys over here. This is like the greatest <laughs> thing that's ever happened. To Jackpot. <laughs> yeah. So he's standing next to this truck and not being, he's not being super scared. He's like, this is awesome. This is like my Disney world right here. Dad is getting up on this truck and he's about to just let it rain Christmas presents of Kongs all over the place. There's about to be tennis balls that are light in the sky. And that's <laughs> and a great I'm description. The visual is awesome, by the way. <laughs> and I'm thinking something drastically different. I'm thinking this might be the point that I die. And so I look inside the truck and see it and immediately tell my company commander that had came and the master circuit that that had came with us, like we need to run in the opposite direction. This is it. And so we start running the other way. Psycho does not want to run the other way because he's like, why are we leaving? I haven't gotten any toys yet. Like this is why it's like going to Disney world without being able to ride a ride. And so I'm trying to get him to go away. He starts barking to get us back to the point where we're trying to leave. And his barking is obviously giving away our positions in the middle of the night. So you're just terrified that entire time going back and looking at it now, I can't believe that that's the way that we did it. Like It's just made no sense to do it that way at all. There's only, I think three or four of us that went on that little mission by ourselves, but it worked. I mean, we found it. They had to get approval to drop 500 pound bombs on top of it. It exploded. And we don't know, I don't know how many lives that saved inside the city or Marines or anything like that, but it was, that was probably my singular greatest accomplishment while I was in Iraq is getting rid of that. That's truck. pretty awesome. Um, did you get to see the actual explosion? 
Oh yeah. It was, yeah. I think that's my first combat concussion too, because we tried to move back, but the secondary explosion, they, actually, they had to drop, I believe three, uh, 500 pound bombs on it. Cause the first two missed off to the side and the last one hit and it, whenever it exploded, it blew back like so many of the windows in the town. It was, it was pretty incredible. Yeah. I remember the first time we found, uh, an, an IED and we had to call EOD and wait for it to place. Uh, and, you know, the EOD guys, I'm sure you know this, uh, cause you're working with bomb handling dogs, but you know, th- th- they pride themselves on being able to set a debt cord fuse and count down to the seconds, you right. know, right to the second when it explodes. And you're just sitting there, you know, you're 250, 300, maybe 500 meters away. And the guy's counting down five, four, three, and then poof. And all of a sudden you see like, damn, that's pretty cool actually. You know, like, yep. but a 500 pound explosion was a lot bigger than what we were doing. I mean, it was just a couple of, uh, one, five, five rounds the first time I did it, but it's still pretty awesome. Um, the way oh, it yeah. works out. So, Okay, so let's fast forward um, to when – and, Bo, by the way, let me ask you, what year was this when you were in Fallujah? 2007. Okay, like month time frame? Do you know? Do you remember? Uh, that was in – the bomb truck was in April. Okay. And so how far is it down the road? And, and for those who aren't military listening, 2007 obviously was a big part of the surge uh, for the military, so the violence was really at its apex um, and you know, I was there in 05 to 06 and Fallujah and Ramadi were, were hell. I mean, it was, that's when, you know, they were hanging Marines off the bridge. Um, yeah. and I was there during that and, uh, it just, it was a place, it, it was really the only convoy I was literally scared at, you know what, to, to, to go on. Um, cause I just knew that there were a lot of dudes dying there on a regular basis and I didn't want any part of it. I would have rather driven through Sadr city than had gone out to Fallujah at that point in time. But, um, so anyway, the, the danger is really high up there in 2007. A lot of a uh, lot of insurgency and whatnot. But tell me about the day where you end up getting wounded in combat. Yeah, you know, I did so many other sexier things than that. <laughs> so <laughs> looking back, well, I, there's so many other missions on that I feel like I acted like very heroically and did my job. And that if it, if there was like a drone going overhead with a camera where. I would love to blog that. The day I got shot was not one of those days. <laughs> so we had just came in and did like a route reconnaissance and some route clearing. And we had walked, I don't remember how long we had walked, but we walked a long damn way, making sure that the Humvees, because like you said, Fallujah and then outside of Fallujah, there's a little town called Karma. There was times where that road was so laced with IEDs that even route clearance wouldn't go. They would say that you have to just take your own EOD tech, take your own combat engineer, and you can blow it up in place because it's too dangerous for us to have all these vehicles out because you're just basically asking to be involved in a choke point. So I would go out and clear it. Then I would find an IED. They would bring up somebody. They would put a shape. They would put a charge on the ID and blow it up in place, and we continue to move inside to our objective. Um, well, we finally got to the objective inside, and I was exhausted. My dog was exhausted. He had worked himself to the bone, but he was incredible because I could just like put a little piece of explosive. I would carry I carried a little brick of C4 on my actual vest, and I would give him a smell of it, and then he would continue to work hard. It was like a smelling salt for him, essentially. And we got into the house that we had taken, and I was getting ready to bed down, and then all of a sudden, like everything just pops off. After we had been maybe in the house for two hours or so, we had put the house that we had chosen was surrounded by a canal. Well, under the cover of darkness, people, a bunch of folks, I don't remember how many were there, but they had snuck in, 
put up small arms, machine guns, and they, it was just a full on attack on our house. And I moved to go to the roof. And whenever I moved, I didn't duck below a window. And we like to make fun of it at my work all the time. People will constantly say, still, Jazz, be careful. We have a lot of windows on this floor. <laughs> so That's messed up, uh, man. They shouldn't do that. Well, it's just, they don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, you know, it is funny and I like play along with it and things. Cause if you can't make fun of yourself, then in my line of work and what I do now, yeah. you'll be screwed. So I am the one who like initiated some of those jokes. So it's totally cool with me. But whenever we go, I was walking in front of a, the window and around came through and it spun me around. Originally, I had thought that I had been hit by a brick and that. That, I, that there was just shrapnel flying everywhere in the house. And I spun around, I could, I looked down at my arm and I could see that like my muscle and stuff like that was hanging out. So I immediately tucked it back into my arm and started applying a pressure and calls to the corpsman. Well, because of the nature of like reconnaissance work, there's not a whole lot of people in the house whenever you're doing that. Um, so we're, and they're trying to push back on this attack. Mortar rounds are starting to drop on the house that we're in as well. And you could hear it. And I'm, I am at this point, I'm fucking terrified. Like I look down at my arm. I'm trying, I'm tying a tourniquet to my arm because I think I'm going to lose it. And after the tick was kind of over, it was 45 minutes in that we had to wait until we could call a chopper to come get me out. Um, just lots of people died that day. Lots of insurgents died that day. We were lucky enough not to lose anybody, but we had to wait, you know, like for every single mortar round that drops the, the time, starts over again until they can ring a helicopter. And so you hear one and it's like, it's not even the fact that your house that you're in is still getting mortar attacked, but you're like, okay, my clock starts again. My clock starts again. My clock starts again. And I'm sitting underneath this stairwell um, at this point because like, it's basically died down. There's another dude who burnt his hand, changing a barrel on, uh, on a 240, and we're sitting there together and our, our platoon sergeant is not letting us go anywhere. He's like, you guys are going to stay right here. I'm in a lot of pain, obviously, because I just had a round go through me. And the the doc is like, I'll, we'll give you morphine, but you put, us, you put us in a bad position if you take the morphine because you're not going to be able to walk out under your own power. And my dog is freaking out, too. Like, he's really scared that I'm, like, hurt. Like, he could sense it. Like, he's licking up the blood off the ground. Like, just really nervous for me. And... So I deny the morphine, don't take the morphine, and eventually I walk back and get on the helicopter and fly off, holding on to my dog, not having any type of painkiller. I think it was like two or so, two hours or so, maybe maybe longer. The memories have kind of faded at this point. But whenever I got into the hospital, the last thing I remember before I went under for surgery was tying my dog to the table that I was getting in, getting surgery on. I was like, nobody can, nobody touch him or he might get mad. Like I put on his, uh, I put on his muzzle that I had with me at all times. And then I said, don't you call my fucking mom until I wake up. So uh, then I had my surgery and woke up with, and that was probably my favorite moment of combat was when I woke up, it was the first time I had been in air conditioner in months. And there was a, Get Red Sox Yankees game on. And I remember the day, and I wrote it in a blog for Barstool that Kevin Garnett had just been traded to Boston. And I was like, oh man, I get to watch sports. I get to hear him talk about this big trade. 
And then they said, do you want an omelet? And I was like, oh, my God, I would love an omelet. So that was my morning after I woke up. Where was your dog at that point? Did you know? Another canine handler came and got him and took him to the kennels um, on the little fob that I was at. Okay. So go back to when that bullet goes through, what was it, your forearm? Yep. Okay. Um, you seem to gloss over and act very nonchalant about the fact that you had to kind of put your arm back together. At no point did you feel yourself going into the shock? At no point was there any sort of, oh, crap, you know, I mean, what kind, what's going through your head or was it just adrenaline took over? I mean, I'm sure it was shock, but I don't think that it was, like there was never any like self-diagnosis for that. I just looked down and was like, fuck. Like, it, it, I thought that I was going to lose it. There was a time that I was sitting under, when I was sitting underneath the stairs, that all these different things are racing through your mind. I thought about, like, is if I lose my arm, is my daughter going to be embarrassed of me? And my, my kid was two at the time. I thought, am I ever going to be able to hug her again with both arms? Because I thought I was going to lose my arm below the elbow. And I thought about what my life was going to be like as an amputee. And you were thinking all that literally in combat, like in the middle of everything. Yeah. Like, wow. because you just have, I mean, like, you know, like the time is forever. So you're just racing what you're going to Oh, go you're for. saying in the time you were sitting there waiting for the chopper. Right. Yeah. Like, okay. All right. Wait, wait, waiting for the chopper. And the Korma comes downstairs and he's like, he's like, congrats, dude. You'll be one of the only MPs with a purple heart from getting shot. He's like, you'll probably get a B for what you did too. And I was like, that's pretty dope. And so then I'm thinking it as like a Marine, like this is good for my career. Uh, but I actually had just one. Listen to how messed up Marine Corps promotions are. I had won a meritorious combat promotion to sergeant. When I was in the hospital, the lieutenant colonel came in. He was like, hey, you're probably going to get medically separated. So we're actually going to give this promotion to the next guy in line because it will help his career move along. Further. What? Yeah. That's a pretty shit thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I actually got – I had a um, combat meritorious promotion taken away from me because I got shot. Wow. So when you wake up uh, and you look down at your arm, what's the first thing you see and think? I was in a huge cast and I was just relieved that it was there. Like I was, I was very happy that it was there. I can, I was like going through the little test, like, can I move all my fingers and I can move them all except for, the bottom two and i was like that's pretty good like i made it out all right if that's the worst case scenario is that i can't lose use my bottom two fingers then i made it pretty pretty well what did they tell you about your diagnosis they said it was pretty clean that it was like gonna end up being a million dollar wound for me they said that i might not ever have a lot of feeling in my left hand but i should be able to function um and then I should be able to go back on full duty in like six months. And they wanted to ship me to Germany. And I said, absolutely not. Like I didn't want to leave the combat zone because of the deployment that I did. I wanted to complete it. It was like a mental thing for me. I wanted to stay. Right. And they were like, well, you're going to have an open wound for a long time. There's no way that we can allow you to go do operations. So I, then I just started to train some of the other dog handlers and got to travel around to the different fobs. Like I went to blue diamond and Ramadi and went out to like TQ and um, went to Alisad and would just helping train. One of the funnier aspects of when I got shot was my gunny at the time I sent out an email because before I went on an deployment, I had gotten chesty puller tattooed on the inside of my bicep. And 
whenever he sent out the email to all the other cannon handlers there, he said, I, I want you to know that Corporal Cawthorn was shot, but nobody needs to worry because Chesty's okay. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so that million-dollar wound, by the way, you and Forrest Gump, the only people who never saw that million dollars, I assume, right? Right, and yeah, no. You guys have no. something in common. Um, so when did they tell you that, hey, listen, your Marine Corps career is over? Um, it wasn't until after I had a lot more of the, the concussions diagnosed because along the way I'd been – when you're dogging there doing the kind of stuff that I was, we were involved in a lot of those um, simulated explosions or whenever we would blow up IEDs and things like that. And it really rung my bell a couple of times. I mean I, I kind of glossed over but when the 500-pound bomb dropped, like I, I went unconscious like that day. Uh, but nothing ever happened. It was something that we just thought was kind of normal. Uh, mm-hmm. At the time, TBI then wasn't even really discussed. I don't think I heard the term traumatic brain injury until probably 2009, 2010. Yeah, I didn't hear it until after I got home from my second deployment. So Yeah, it just wasn't something that we talked about. You're just like, oh, I got my bell rung. Like, I'm all right. It's all stars. You know, you just use a lot of pseudonames. Like, and that's just the way it, our euphemisms. That's well, but it's, we it's also, listen, man, it's a, you know, it's a concussion. Get over it. Like, it's almost like that football player mentality, right? Like, right. you're going to be fine. Just get back in the fight. You know, it's it's you take your day off, take your two days off, get your bearings together and let's just get back in this thing. Cause there's a job to be done. And that's the yep. mentality. No one really looks at it as anything serious. And lo and behold, obviously now we know a lot more than we did 10 years ago. And the cumulative effects of that stuff can have a long lasting effect on, on any individual. It doesn't matter how tough you are. So um, when they tell you that uh, you're going to be medically retired, what are you thinking and feeling? Um, it didn't happen for me for like three years. So I came back from, I came back from combat, did great. Like, a, like I walked into uh, the office at when I had gotten transferred out of Okinawa and then onto Quantico, and there was a a gunny named Gunny Barrett who used to work at the Wounded Warrior Battalion, and he was an MP2. And because he was, I mean, really, my corpsman was right. There wasn't a whole lot of MPs that had the, the experiences that I did with First Recon Battalion. So, like, I instantly became more credible with my career field. Like people looked at me with respect for the, some of the things that I had done. And he walked in and kind of changed the course of my career and probably my life by coming into my office, shutting the door and was like, listen, devil dog, you have got to not think about anything that you ever did in combat. You have got to earn the title Marine every single day. He was like, people know what you did. People know these stories He's like, but you cannot act like these stories exist. You continue to earn the Eagle Globe and Anchor every single day. Be the best Marine that you could be every single day, and you're going to go far. And I had set my path, like after talking to him and after having lunch, I wanted to be a Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps. That was my goal. That's what I was shooting for. And I, I wanted to do big, big things in the Marine Corps, and it just never ended up working out for me. So when uh, you end up finding out that – you know, it's not going to go that way. Are you disappointed? Was it just, did you look at it as, Hey, this is what the deal is. Yeah. And I, I was going to fight the discharge because Uh I couldn't, the thing was that with my brain injury at the time and like PTSD, I couldn't be around gunfire and simple, simple as if you can't shoot, you can't be a Marine. I can't be on active duty anymore. And I told my first time, I was like, look, I'll fight this. I'll go like do speaking tours. I'll work at Wounded Warrior. I'll do like whatever I need to do to stay in. And he looked at me. He's like, 
just go enjoy your family, man. He was like, you're going to fight this and try to stay. He's like, but the level of retirement you're going to get from the Marine Corps and the VA, he's like, you're going to make more money now than if you stayed in as long as I did. He's like, don't screw yourself long term because you have these pipe dreams. He's like, all of your big dreams about being Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps and things like that, they're just not going to happen. He's like, you need to accept it and move on with the next phase of your life and do big things and be a lifelong Marine instead of a Marine on active duty. And so at that point, I was like, I kind of just like relented after because my first sergeant was always super honest with me. And I love him to this day. We talk all the time still. And it was the best advice that he ever gave me. All right. So uh, Marine Corps life on active duty ends. Um, but there is a transition phase there for you. Uh, take me through it. And uh, how hard was it for you? It was hard because, I mean, I, my entire identity at that point was wrapped up in being this Marine that I had always wanted to be like that since I had set my path to that and wanted to accomplish big things, I didn't know what I was going to do. And before I had gotten off active duty, probably the biggest change for me was I went through the biggest embarrassment of my life. And it's something that for a long time I was hesitant to talk about because it was so embarrassing to me. Um, I was out on a river one day whenever I was, I was still on active duty and I got involved in an altercation with a police officer and I hit the cop and ended up getting arrested for aggravated assault on a police officer. And I was really, really drunk because like a lot of Marines and a lot of military members who are dealing with PTSD, kind of undiagnosed, kind of untreated, I used alcohol as a mask and I woke up in a jail cell in Kamal County, Texas and thought that I was there for a DUI. I was like, fuck, I got a DUI. I'm screwed. And then I go into the booking room and they told me that I'm arrested for aggravated assault on a police officer and that my bond is going to be set at $130,000. And my jaw like dropped. And I, I thought that something had to be wrong. There's no way that I would have done that. Like I had worked my entire life to be a good person there's, I'm not a bad guy. There's no way that this actually happened. Well, it did happen. And I ended up, I punched a cop and there was all these stories that were written about me and I was painted as this really terrible person. And I did do something that was incredibly terrible. And I had to go through this legal process while I was still on active duty. Luckily enough, the, my command really stuck up for me and told them stories about some of the things I had done in combat and the kind of person that I've been uh, my entire life and my entire career. And they said, okay, well, we're not going to adjudicate this process until you're actually out, which allowed me to retire and get like full benefits and things like that. If they wouldn't have done that, I would have been really screwed. Do the details of what happened matter? Um, yeah, they matter because I, th I, I think about whenever because the way that it happened, the cop had to go get like a surgery on his mouth because he had bit through his tongue and he had to get a surgery on his mouth. And oh, I wow. think about you hit him that hard. Yeah. And um, I think about it. I think about it now. And it guts me that somebody had to get a phone call and that their loved one was injured because of my actions. So the details for sure matter. And it's still something that I pay for. I still like have. I'm still on probation and it's something that's incredibly embarrassing like that I that I did and it is the single most difficult 
part of my story is admitting that and saying it in public. There was like when you introduced me uh, as Matthew Gossman at the top of the show, there was a time where I didn't want people to know what my name was because I was so embarrassed of my actual name because if you Google searched it, it was the first thing that popped up. Yeah. And that's a terrible feeling to know that you're embarrassed of your name because of the actions that you had. And I looked at it before I had 31 years that there wouldn't have been probably anything that I'd be embarrassed of. But now I was at the point where I, I didn't want people to know my name. I didn't want people to call me by my name or anything like that. Do you ever get a chance to talk to the cop and apologize? No, he asked me not to. So I, I respect that. I did write a letter and apologize to him and his family. Um, but other than that, nothing. Does that is, bother you that you never got a chance to shake his hand and say you're sorry? Um, I don't feel like I have the right to be upset. If it's his wishes to not speak to me, then I I feel like I owe him that to ab- abide by that. No, sure. I, I understand that. But, I mean, is that something that, that you feel like if you had had the chance to do, it might make you view it differently? Oh, certainly. I mean, I and whenever I actually went before the judge, I did apologize in open court about everything. But, um, yeah, I, I would like to look him in the eye, man to man, not required to or anything like that, and say I'm sorry for sure. Did you lose anybody on the deployment? Um, people that I was with? Yeah, yeah, like any of the Marines? Yep. What was that like for you? Um, it was tough. Uh, it, definitely tough. I still talk to some of the family members and some of the spouses. I still speak to them. Recently, one of my Marines, David Sanka, was killed in Afghanistan. And because of the nature of my job, I was able to get David's name on the pace car at the Coca-Cola 600 that just happened um, and was able to bring Tori down and let her spend the weekend with like my podcast group with my company, Barstool Sports and able to kind of just tell her thank you and reconnect and see her and see how she's doing. Um, so it was definitely a tough process. How much of that you think contributed to your PTSD? Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of, I mean, it was just over the course of seven months of seeing terrible things that contributed. That's why I'm so active in helping get get military members help now like i'm really involved with the headstrong project and getting them to raise funds and for unstigmatized mental health care because i really believe that if i would have been treated correctly whenever i came back that that all the bad parts like the alcohol abuse the assault all that thing probably wouldn't have happened um that so yeah i think that we've come a long way and helping people come back, but we still have a long ways to go. Any resentment that you weren't given the right help? Mm, I don't know if I would say resentment. I look forward to the day whenever it's mental health, going to see mental health is just as common as when you get back is going to make sure that you're still dental class one. I Nobody ever is ashamed to come back and be like, hey, I, got, I need a root canal when I came back because you didn't you weren't able to brush your teeth the same way for seven months. I, I think that it's just, I don't have resentment for it. I just wish things were a little bit different. No, and, and maybe resentment's not the right word. Uh, maybe frustration, maybe, um, you know, just sort of uh, feeling like a missed opportunity um, to, to 
fix the things that were wrong, you know, and, and I'm in, in in a similar boat. I, I wish for years that somebody would have approached me and asked me what really went on. Like, what, what, what are you still struggling with? You know, because the nightmares, the flashbacks and things that even to this day, still sometimes that, that I, I carry with me, uh, even to this day on the 4th of July, you know, I'm indoors. Uh, I don't like being outside on the 4th of July. I don't like fireworks anymore. Um, there's just too many of them that sound like too many things that I was a part of that, that just take me back to a spot that I don't want to be. Um, and, and I don't know that that'll ever go away. But I, I like you said, I kind of wish I would have had the opportunity at least to deal with that when it first happened. So it's not so much a part of me now, maybe. Yeah. You know, I've kind of focused that I was definitely in that boat for the first couple of years, but now I'm at a point where I try not to look back too much and just think about who I'm going to be in the future. Because if I look back, there's going to be elements of disappointment. I try to think about the kind of person that I am now. Like we we're getting off the phone um, in a little while and I have an appointment at one o'clock to go see a mental health provider. Like, and I talk about that openly on my show that, that that's something that we should continue to do and be stronger about it. And I think as leaders and the veteran community, we have a responsibility. So I choose kind of not to look back, but to look forward and help people who are getting out, help people who are transitioning and like, look, this is what you should be doing rather than constantly for me looking back because looking back is filled with disappointment, but my future is, is bright. All right. With that, you talk about forward and all the things that you're doing now. How does the opportunity with Barstool Sports come about? You know, when I got out and I decided, you know, I'm going to take and use my GI bill, I'm going to go to school. But I was bored, man. Like going back to school, I was just really bored. My first ever writing assignment was The Dangers of Underage Drinking. And I was like, man, I'm like 30 years old. I haven't been in danger of underage drinking in a long time, but I had to write a five paragraph paper about that. So I just started tweeting all the time about the Jacksonville Jaguars and big Jags fan. And so I started tweeting about them gained like a following in the sports world. And whenever I was done with school, I decided to have a podcast. I had formed a relationship with the NFL networks, Ian Rappaport, and he was my first guest. But I recorded this by talking into a shoebox with a little tiny microphone with like the egg carton in the back so it wouldn't echo. <laughs> <laughs> and somebody tagged my boss, Dave Portnoy, and they're like, This dude Chaps is really funny. You should check him out. And he did. He liked the podcast. And the next thing you know, he offered me a full time job, and that was about three years ago. That's awesome. Now when he offered you a full time job, was it with the military you know, peace in mind, or were you just working for regular bar stool? And then you said, Hey, I'd like to branch out and do this military thing. Yeah. He had no idea that I even had the military background whenever he got, when I got hired. And then I kind of told him the story. He, he said, okay, well, can you start on, uh, July 28th is whenever he wanted me to start. Um, and I said, you know, actually I wouldn't mind, would you mind if I started actually on July 31st because that's my alive day? And I had to explain to him what an alive day was. Um, and then I, he was like, oh, I didn't even realize that you had that in your story at all. He said, sure. So we made the announcement. We actually had Ian Rappaport break it like it was an NFL signing, like the Chaps has signed a multi-year contract with Barstool Sports and we're taking his talents there. Um, so it was really exciting. And then he asked me if I wanted to do a military podcast or military coverage. And I originally said no. Like I wanted to move on with that part of my life. And I didn't want to be tied to 
the Marine Corps tied to veteran stuff all the time. I wanted to do it if I wanted to, but not as like a weekly requirement type of thing, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, but then I thought about it more. I was like, I can really make a difference because when I first got, when it first got announced, so many people were reach out to me and like, it's great to see a Marine doing good things post-service. Let's get this going. And so then we started zero block 30 and that's become essentially like my professional baby. Well, it's awesome. I mean, you've interviewed some really amazing people on Zero Block 30. You've got a huge following. Uh, personally, I'm kind of jealous of it. I wish we had the following you guys had, but uh, <laughs> um, certainly there's a there, there's a reason for that. Um, you know, Barstool is an interesting brand. I'm just curious, um, you know, humor aside and, and levity aside, you know, th they have had some sort of – What's the way? What's the way to phrase this here, chaps? Um, controversy. Yeah, let's just call it controversy about some of the things that have gone on. Did any of that deter you at all? Did any of that bother you? I mean, because when we talk about military, we're always associating with values, right? Like it's a big right. thing for us to have values. And given all that you had personally gone through, I, I feel like in the time we've talked, it would be inconsistent for you to do something that wasn't consistent with your values. Was any of that ever an issue for you? No, um, there is certain Why? things that give, there is certain things that have happened like at the company that give me pause, but I've never ever, and this is the thing that I value the most about my company is one, the editorial process for anything that I create is completely mine. There's in the three years that I've worked there, they have never asked me to support something that I don't, that to write about something that I didn't want to. I pick exactly what I write about. I pick the people that I interview. I pick what I talk about, how much I talk about it. All of those things, I have complete editorial control. And from day one, no one has been more supportive of like my post-Marine life. Like my two bosses, Erica Nardini, who's the CEO, and Dave Portnoy, who's the boss, they completely support me. They knew every aspect of my story after I got hired because I felt like that was the right thing to do, to tell them about it. Like they weren't going to do a background check or anything. But I knew eventually the story would come out of what happened with me and the police officer. They were supportive and said that we understand that you got counseling and that's not the type of person that you are now. They, because of the impact that like I've made on them and the, the Zero Block 30 has made on the company, when we have like a Memorial Day event, for example, or Black Friday is an even better example because that doesn't have anything to do with the military. So when we had Black Friday and Cyber Monday, they didn't have to, but they take a portion of the sales, which ended up being like a quarter of a million dollars last year. And donated that to Headstrong because they know how important those processes are to me. They're incredibly supportive about everything that we do. It's pretty awesome. Um, you know, again, I I, I am from obviously familiar with Barstool due to my civilian job, and and um, you know I follow them on all the accounts. But in, in full disclosure, you know, I'm not always like keen on 100 on everything that they do. But you know, I felt like in talking to you, um, it, it's one of those things where like if one of my brothers can sign off on it, then it also kind of gives me reason to believe that everything's on the up and up, if that makes any sense. I mean, with as long as Barstool has been going on and the type of content that we create and cover, I think it's a, it's a weird thing about Barstool, too, is that the assumption is that if somebody from Barstool writes an article, that every other person agrees with that. You don't have that in any other media company. You know, like if Stephen A. Smith says something, you're not going to assume that Reese Davis feels the same way. But for some reason, because it's a barstool umbrella, if Dave or Kevin or Dan says something, that it's assumed that everybody agrees, and that's just not the case. And barstool allows us – if Dave wrote something and I found it ridiculous, 
there would be absolutely no repercussion if I wrote a, the very next blog, like Dave's take on this was fucking stupid. Like <laughs> there would be no repercussions about that at all. That's awesome. Oh, that's pretty good. I mean, it's, a, it, it's refreshing to hear you say that. It really is. So um, let me ask you, uh, if you had to choose one only to rewrite your story, Marines or Barstool? Um, how about the transition between the two? <laughs> I, I love everything that happened with my Marine Corps career. I don't look back and regret any of that. And it led me to be the kind of man that I am today. And I am in, incredibly proud of what I've built at Barstool and like my own personal brand at zero block 30. So I would say that those two, I'm very, very proud of every single step along the way. It was the transition between the two that was really shitty for me. I think I know the answer, but I'll ask this anyway. I remember you telling us at the top of the show that there was like three different individuals who you were, right? Your pre-Marine life, your Marine life, and your post-Marine life. If you could go back now um, and, and take one of those individuals by the hand and better guide them, which one would you grab? Um, again, the transition between Stafford and Catherine and Chaps. I think I would guide that one a little bit more because I think that the who I am now is kind of a marriage between – my pre-Marine Corps self and my Marine Corps self where in my transition and getting out and after everything happened, I've become a lot more balanced of a person, a person who um, still has good values, who still cares about people, but I care about people in a different way. Like we are completely about on zero block 30 talking about mental health with no stigma. We're about being completely open. We don't care if you're gay, lesbian, straight, black, white, Jewish, Muslim, anything. We want to help you become a better person. And mostly we just want to make you laugh. So our show is 80% humor, 20% serious. But when we talk about the seriousness, we do it from the guise of we've got to be better people. And we, we encourage you to be better people too. If you could right now, if they would medically let you go back in the Marines, would you? Absolutely not. <laughs> no way. I, this is honestly, if when I was sitting down, this is a dream job. Like Barstool Sports is an absolute dream job. I tell people all the time that they pay me very well, but if I ever won the lottery, I would do this job for free in a second. That's awesome, man. That is outstanding. Well, Chaps, listen, uh, hearing your story is incredible. Uh, I'm glad you were able to shed some light on it. Thank you for being so honest and being willing to share everything uh, that you've gone through. Um, and I'm sure that there are still moments and there are still times where some of this stuff stays with you, but um, you, you've certainly given yourself and other people a platform to talk about it, your association with the Headstrong Project and uh, and everything that you've done in your post-Marine life as far as the transition is concerned is beyond honorable. Um, you know, and from one guy who wears a uniform to another, man, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of you. I'm glad that you've been able to make this transition. I'm glad that you're still fighting a fight, both, you know, personally, but helping other people fight that fight. I think that's the most important thing. And, and uh, you know, I, I certainly appreciate you um, still being at the forefront and using your platform to make everybody better, brother. Well, thank you. And I appreciate you not making me the guest after the last living World <laughs> War II Medal of Honor recipient. So that was a big win for me. <laughs> yeah, well, listen, I mean, uh, sometimes we that was more about Memorial Day as we taped this after Memorial Day. That was more about putting it on Memorial Day and everything else. But, um, you know, we... Uh, You'll have your own place at the top there, chaps, I promise. Brother. Whoever that poor sucker is that's next, man, I feel bad for him. <laughs> I might have to send him a fruit basket or something. Well, chaps, listen, again, I appreciate you taking the time out. I know you're a busy man, but certainly thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground, brother. Appreciate it. 
Yeah, and if you'll let me plug my show, Zero Absolutely. Thirty, you can find it on Spotify or iTunes or anywhere that podcasts live. If you have a Google or Alexa, you can just tell her to play Zero Block 30. Um, also, my work is at Barstool Sports. So if you want to find me on Twitter or Instagram, I'm at Uncle Chaps. Chaps, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thanks so much, man. I appreciate being on your show. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Cox can help make your home smarter and your life easier. Now you can use your Contour voice remote to connect to your home life cameras so you can view them right on your TV screen using simple voice commands. That makes it easy to keep tabs on what's happening around your home right from your couch. Need to keep an eye on the kids when they're playing outside? Just say, show me my backyard camera into your Cox voice remote and watch them while you're in the house. And if you're waiting for a delivery and want to make sure it's there on time, no problem. Just say, show me driveway camera to check on it with your Home Life HD cameras on the TV screen while you go about your day. When you live in a home powered by Cox Internet, you can stay connected to what matters and let Cox take care of the rest. To learn more about all the benefits of your connected home, visit cox.com slash thisishome today.